Please take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Our brother James Walsh was briefly in town uh, earlier this week. Uh, Pastor Brad and I were able to visit with him. This was probably, I think, Thursday morning. And at that time, um, our meeting together was, was rather um, discouraging. The outlook was so gloomy and so dark, and it was a, an hour to really mourn together and to cry out to God together. And um, the contrast between the setting that morning and then the text that we received on Friday uh, of the video of Amber uh, moving the right side of her body, it was just night and day. There was a breakthrough, and God is hearing our prayers. And when I say, you know, Ben's in motion restored, I mean, it's like, it's like, like this, you know, like, I mean, she could do it better than I could. But it was unprecedented, it was extraordinary, and the therapists, the doctors, all amazed at what's happening. Keep praying for Amber. Uh, she's saying some words. She can't quite respond. She's not conversational exactly. She understands what you're saying to her, but she can't, she can't really respond to you. Pray that she would become conversational again. The Lord would bring more breakthroughs still. Matthew chapter 6. Let's read together verses 5 through 15, uh, though the focus of our message will be this morning on verses 9 and 10. Let's read in context, Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful to you that in the work of your Son and sending him to dwell among us, not only did he achieve the great work of redemption, the great work of atonement in our place, achieving our salvation by his blood, but he taught us so many things. We thank you that he taught us how to pray. So we pray as we come now again to this, what we have often called the Lord's Prayer. We pray that we would make it our own. We pray that you would help us to understand this prayer better than we ever have, to pray it more intelligently, more sincerely, more in faith. Please, we pray that you would use this message to 
to serve our prayer lives and our communion with you and our sense of what you're doing in us and in the world. Please, Lord, do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is uh, an ongoing series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're now in a kind of short series within the series on the Lord's Prayer, three sermons that I purpose to give to what we often call the Lord's Prayer as it's contained in Matthew 6, 9, uh, through verse 13, but really through uh, the end of verse 15, which we'll consider uh, next time. And uh, in this uh, series, I've suggested that one of the things the Lord is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is revealing to us the will of God. He's revealing to us the will of the Father. He's giving forth the royal law, the most lofty teaching that we have in uh, all the Scriptures. Uh, I was so edified by Johnny Harris's adult equipped class this morning uh, in the Gospel of John. And even as he was taking us through the prologue, uh, you have that statement in John 1, verse 18, the end of the prologue of John's Gospel, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side or in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. And Johnny did such a Excellent job of showing forth the wonder of that statement that Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, has come to reveal the Father. The one who is in the bosom of the Father is now made flesh, God incarnate, and He's revealing things to us. Well, that made me all the more excited to come back to this prayer. Here is the one who was with God, the one through whom all prayers would be offered. And here he is, the Son of God, the one who has been in heaven at the Father's side, the only God. And he's making known now how we're to pray to this God. And he reveals to us that God is our Father in heaven. And he tells us the very petitions that should occupy our minds and our thoughts. Last time we were together, I asked two questions of the text. First, I asked, what do we have in the Lord's Prayer? What is the Lord's Prayer? And I gave three answers to that question. First of all, the Lord's Prayer represents a pivotal moment of revelation in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is revelation. This is something Jesus is disclosing about the way we are to come to God, how we are to conceive of our relationship to Him, and what petitions, priorities, and burdens we should bring to Him. Secondly, we noted the Lord's Prayer represents an inspired guide to believing prayer. We may pray the Lord's Prayer word for word, and that would be in every way appropriate, Uh, It's never to be used as a kind of rote formula that's prayed thoughtlessly, but if we pray intelligently and sincerely and by faith these words, that's a wholesome thing to do. And it may also serve as a framework or an outline uh, under which we may bring our specific and particular petitions to the Lord. The third answer we gave is that the Lord's Prayer represents the clearest and most direct teaching we have on prayer in all the Bible. We have examples of prayers. We have commands to pray. But here, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is telling us precisely how to pray. He's giving us teaching on prayer. And he's recognizing in that we need to be taught how to pray. We need to be discipled in how to come to God. We must be taught how to pray to him. Then we ask the question, secondly, what do we have in the Lord's Prayer? Secondly, we went to uh, that statement in verse 9, the opening of the prayer, We ask, what is communicated by the phrase, our Father in heaven? We observe, first of all, it is meant to communicate a sense of fatherly care, intimacy, and love. That we are to relate to God on the terms of a child to a father, a son to a father, a daughter to a father. And what characterizes the relationship of a father to a child? 
We know this intuitively, hopefully by nature. We certainly know it from the Word of God, that tenderness and care and affection and benevolence and warmth and intimacy and closeness is at the heart of the picture of what it means to be children to a father. We observe, secondly, that that phrase, our Father in heaven, is meant to communicate a sense of free and open access. Children can come to their fathers at any time of the day. They have a freedom, they have a safety in His presence to make their wants and their wishes and their petitions and their burdens known to Him. We are to cast all our cares upon Him knowing that He cares for us, Peter says. We have free and open access. And of course, though Jesus doesn't expound this here in this prayer, we know we have that access precisely through the way He is made, through His flesh. He has purchased for us. He has secured for us such open and free access to our Father through His blood. And then the third answer we gave, what is communicated by the phrase, our Father in heaven, we observed that it is meant to communicate a sense of God's great power and authority. He is our Father in heaven. He is the imminent God who is drawn near in the person of Jesus Christ. Tenderness, closeness, familiarity, intimacy. He's our Father who is in heaven. He is the great transcendent God. He is the immortal God. He is the God of ages. He is the God of all majesty and glory and might and power. He possesses great power and authority. What I want us all to see is this. There is a connection between who God is as our Father in heaven and the subsequent content of the prayer that we're going to begin considering this morning. After we've taken time to orient ourselves toward God, And to recollect what manner of God He is, that He is personal, that He is loving, that He is our powerful Father, then the content of our prayers will be radically affected in at least two ways, when we comprehend and assess who we are praying to. First of all, God's concerns will be given priority. God's concerns will be given priority. Just appreciate from the start how utterly God-centered this prayer is, especially the first three petitions. Appreciate the whole God orientation to the prayer. We don't begin the prayer with a laundry list of our wants and our wishes and our desires. No, rather, uh, the personal pronouns are in the second person, not the first. When we assess that we are coming to our Father in heaven, uh, what, what, what do we then move to? What are the considerations that are uppermost and primary and first importance? that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the opening of this prayer, in these first three petitions, Jesus is expanding our view of what should be the subject of our prayers. He's sort of expanding the agenda. The concerns of God's person and God's plans and God's purposes are to factor into your prayer life. They're actually the matters of first importance. God and His glory, God and His kingdom, God and His will, these priorities are to be prominent and indeed have the place of priority in our prayers, which means our prayer life is meant to ascend beyond the plane of the horizontal. You know, the problems I have in my life, the things on my to-do list, those sorts of things, we're to be consumed and absorbed rather with the person and being of God. His agenda, His glory, His person, His attributes, His name, His kingdom, His will. God's priorities will begin to become our priorities in prayer. But second, second thing that will happen when we assess that God is our Father in heaven, second, our own needs 
though demoted to second place, may yet be comprehensively committed to him. So, so, so the fact that God is our Father in heaven doesn't downgrade the significance of our needs. Rather, though they take a place behind in priority the glory of God and the work of his kingdom and his will, nonetheless, the fact that God is our Father in heaven is meant to invite what? Free and open access. We are to pray for things as seemingly mundane and small as our daily bread, as needing to find our car keys, you know, as the exam that's coming up for one of the kids. The very details and most minute considerations of our lives, they matter to God. They matter to your Father who is in heaven, and therefore our cares may be comprehensively committed to Him because He's our Father. He's not too busy to hear from us. He wants us to come close. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? What are your needs? What do you wish? When we recognize who it is we're praying to, we may recognize we may commit all of our burdens and our needs and our cares to Him. All right, that's a summary of last week's sermon and some of the effects it should have on us. This morning, we'll consider the first three petitions. At least that's the plan. We have three concerns here, three petitions. Then next week, God willing, we'll consider the last three petitions and the final remark Jesus makes in verses 14 through 15. Three concerns in the prayer this morning. Number one, God's glory. Number two, God's kingdom. And number three, God's will. What should concern us in our prayers? Number one, God's glory. Number two, God's kingdom. Number three, God's will. Consider with me first God's glory. We pray in the first place, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That's an old word, hallowed, uh, to make holy, to make great, to worship. Hallowed be your name. This first petition brings into view God's name. Now, I've said this many times, hopefully if you've been a Christian for some length of time, you understand this, that names in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, but all throughout the Bible, carry with them far greater significance than the names of most sort of 21st century American people. I've used the kind of trivial illustration before when we named our kids, uh, we didn't put a lot of thought into the meaning of the names exactly. We liked the sound of them. We liked the way they fit with the last name. There were nicknames we wanted to call them by that had a much larger influence on the names of our children than other considerations. Uh, so in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's decidedly not the case. You, you don't think, well, I really want to call my son Dom or my daughter Cammie, so that's the name I'm going to give to them. No, names in the Bible, we recognize this, right? They mean so much more. They have reference to that person's identity, that person's purpose that person's attributes. They go to the heart of the being of the person. And so it is with God. He's given many names throughout the Old Testament, and what do the names that are given to God in the Old Testament do? They describe various attributes of God. They are revealing to us who God is. So we may not think of God at any time detached from His name. It's not arbitrary. It's not a mistake. God is not just, you know, G-O-D, those letters put together. No, there's something communicated by the name of God. God's name is His identity. It is the heart of who He is. So to pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying, hallowed be God. Hallowed be God in His person and in His being and in His character and in His very essence. 
We are speaking of God at the heart of who He is. Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes this, the name, in other words, means all that is true of God and all that has been revealed concerning God. It means God in all His attributes, God in all that He is in and of Himself, and God in all that He has done and all that He is doing. That's an excellent definition of what we are referring to when we refer to the name of God and when we pray, hallowed be your name. We are praying that God Himself would be hallowed and glorified, that He would be adored and admired and loved and worshipped. This is a prayer that God's glory would be magnified in me and in all the world. Of course, as many have observed, if we are to pray, hallowed be your name, we can only pray that prayer in sincerity and in faith if we ourselves hallow God's name first. So from that angle, our prayer in essence is that we ourselves, when I pray, Father, hallowed be your name, I'm praying that I myself would honor and adore and worship and pray and reverence God's name. We are praying that we would hallow his name and we would give him glory as he is due. It is a prayer in the first instance for ourselves. When we go to God in private or all together and we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying, Lord, make me to be a man or woman who gives all glory to you, who walks in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called, who lives life in such a way that all praise and honor and adoration and glory and praise goes to your name. Help me in my life by the words I say, the ideas I think, by the actions I take to hallow your name in all the earth. And I think very simply and obviously, one of the best ways we can do this is through prayer itself. I think Jesus means by this petition and its placement at the head of the prayer that a significant portion of our prayers to God should be taken up simply with worshiping God. That this should be a component, a dynamic, a feature of our prayers to God. That we're taken up simply with His person and His being how great and glorious He is, how perfect His attributes are, how He thrills our hearts and delights our souls and is everything beautiful and lovely and perfect to us. We are to be taken up with God in prayer. And when we come to Him in prayer, we're to worship Him through prayer. Friends, you do this in your own prayer life. Uh, when you come to God, do you take time just to worship God in secrecy? in the closeness and intimacy of prayer, and to tell God all the things you admire about Him and love about Him, all the ways in which He's worthy of your praise and your worship and your devotion, or is it just always immediately to the laundry list of things you want Him to do? You know, you just sort of stumble into prayer, heedless, thoughtless of who you're addressing, except for the fact that He can do stuff for you. And so you start going down the laundry list of things you need done. Do you ever know seasons in your prayer life in your private worship at home, in your devotions, around the table with your family, will you just take some time to consider who God is and to hallow His name in prayer, to worship Him, and to tell Him all that is lovely about Him. Our prayers, brothers and sisters, are meant to go higher and to go deeper and to go broader than just the laundry list of felt needs that we have. 
They're to go all the way up to God himself and to contemplate his character. I'll just say by uh, way of application, if we begin to pray in this way, where we give considerable time just to hallowing God's name in prayer, considering his person, fellowshipping with him, communing with him on the terms of his character and his being and his nature, and extolling who he is, you will find over time that your life will begin to change, that you will begin to have a more God orientation about your life. His priorities will become your priorities. You'll become more God-centered in your thoughts and in your life and in your habits. As you see prayer more so as a matter of praising and worshiping God and hallowing His name, you will begin to conceive of your life and its concerns in different ways. You will become more God-centered, more consumed and absorbed in God and His glory being at the center of your life. But now, of course, it must be added to pray, hallowed be your name. We must go beyond simply our own hallowing of God's name. Rather, we're to pray more so also that others too would hallow God's name. We want others to acknowledge God's unsurpassed and glorious holiness always. When we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, yes, first, immediately, in me, in my life, I want to pray that prayer with a good conscience, that I am hallowing God's name. But Lord, we want the whole earth to be filled with your glory. We want men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to hallow your name. I want members of my family to hallow your name. I want members in my community to hallow your name. I want members in the halls of Congress and in the White House to hallow your name. We want men and women in Iran and in India and in Zambia to hallow your name. We want the whole earth to be filled with your glory. And of course, one of the things that troubles us most, isn't it, that God's name is not reverenced and hallowed as it ought to be. Uh, that everywhere around us, uh, creatures, those made in the image of the almighty creator God, don't recognize his goodness or grace at all. More than that, the God who has sent forth his only begotten son to be the savior of the world and to make atonement for the sins of all those who would come to him in repentance and faith, the God who invites all to come to be his children, they don't come to him, they don't acknowledge him. This should grieve us and it should move us to pray, oh God, our Father in heaven, may your name be lifted up in all the earth. May we see in our time and in our day more men and women worshiping you hallowing your name, lifting you up, extolling you, and giving to you the honor and the glory that is due to your name and your name alone. Can you see, friends, how the Lord's Prayer, just by this first petition, immediately indicts so many of our prayers that are about nothing more than just listing our casual wants. Uh, those prayers that are almost indistinguishable from a child's letters to Santa Claus. It would be great, Lord, if my marriage were better. It would be great if the check engine light would turn off. Uh, if we had an extra $1,000 a month, thank you very much. Uh, if my family would be a little more well-ordered, kids could behave better. We just sort of launch into those kinds of petitions, thoughtless about the glory of God and the hallowing of His name. This petition tells us from the start, from the get-go, the agenda for our prayer should be so much broader than just this imminent little world I live in, consumed by myself and my own sense of what I want and what I wish would happen in my life. I'm meant to go higher. I'm meant to go wider in my prayers. 
Our prayers, brothers and sisters, may be as deep and as broad and as wide as the character and being of God himself. And the plans and purposes and the priorities of God himself, these things should consume our minds. It's not to say that it's wrong to pray that the check engine light would turn off, but it puts it in perspective, doesn't it, to know that the end of all the universe is that God would be glorified and enjoyed. And I'm to plug my life into that. And all these other petitions that we will pray will have their perspective in connection with the hallowing of God's name and His glory as the chief priority. Uh, I will sometimes in our uh, small group gatherings, I, I don't want to in any way say that it's inappropriate to pray, you know, for physical healing in some way. I've been having back trouble, please pray that, you know, the Lord would heal my back or, you know, we're having some financial difficulty, pray that the Lord would provide for our needs. We are to pray for those things. Those things are not downgraded in their importance. They're actually promoted in their importance, and they're going to be covered in this very prayer in a later petition. That said, every third or fourth small group when we gather, if I feel like all we've been praying for lately is like Aunt Mabel's big toe, you know, or, or Jenny's, you know, midterm exam coming up, I'll just say, for, for this small group, uh, we go around and we take up, because let, let's just take up spiritual burdens related to our relationship to God, our sense of His purposes in our lives, ways we want to grow in following Him, let's be consumed with that. And it is really, I think, fed and enriched, the small group setting, when we realize you know, more than just you know, wanting uh, things to go well for me in my work environment, more than that, I am entitled to pray for the concerns of the universe, the concerns of the kingdom of God, the concerns of God's name and His glory, and it transports us and transcends us and elevates the quality of our prayers. I'll just say before leaving this first point, if, if you would like help in doing this, uh, developing both a sense and a vocabulary for hallowing God's name in prayer, I couldn't recommend enough uh, that book we've promoted in a few different settings, The Valley of Vision. It's available in the bookstore. I'm not trying to sell books here. We make no profit on the bookstore. We actually lose money on the bookstore. You can go and pick up that book, The Valley of Vision, and just see the ways in which these, these, these Puritan people uh, conceived of God and elevated His name and honored Him and had this sort of sense of the grandeur and the being that they were approaching. And it elevated their prayers and enriched their prayers and deepened their prayers. I'd encourage you to pick up The Valley of Vision. We're actually giving away that book at Feed My Sheep. So you could register for Feed My Sheep and get the book for free if you'd like to come to that event. The first concern that we bring in prayer we see is God's glory, that God's name would be hallowed. Now, the second concern that we're given, the second petition, we are to pray, secondly, for God's kingdom. God's kingdom. We pray, secondly, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I want to recall to your minds briefly some of the things we've observed in previous sermons about the kingdom of heaven, or other gospels refer to the kingdom of God. Same thing, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. It's a massive subject in Matthew's gospel, and I recognize it's hard to keep kind of all the pieces together. Since we've talked about the kingdom in a couple of different sermons, I've had people come to me and say, now, now hold on, how does this text fit in with what you said about the kingdom? And it's tough to kind of keep all the material together. And indeed, I will maintain there are some still mysterious aspects to the kingdom. Uh, that are 
hard to exactly place and figure out. It will elude narrow definitions, the kingdom of heaven. The term kingdom is used some 55 times in Matthew's gospel, almost always as the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is it? Particularly in Matthew's gospel, that's the question I want to ask. What is the kingdom of heaven? I remind you first of what it is not. I remember when I was a little boy in church, people talk about the kingdom of heaven, and I just assumed that was heaven, like the, the place we go when we die or something like that, you know? And so the kingdom of heaven, when I die, I will go to the kingdom of heaven. A uh, connected idea, but not really the heart of the picture here. Moreover, the kingdom of heaven is not to be conceived of as a this-worldly geopolitical realm or a nation or a country or Christendom or the Holy Roman Empire or something like that. It's not like I can give you an address where the kingdom of heaven is or you cross certain physical borders and all of a sudden you're in the kingdom of heaven. That's not the way in which the New Testament writers will write about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, at least in its current manifestation, is not really to be thought of as spatial or national. It is not a kingdom with physical geographical borders, at least not yet. The kingdom of heaven is principally spiritual in nature Though it may certainly have material and physical and practical implications for people who come into that kingdom, they start to live differently, start to act differently, those who are members of the kingdom of heaven. Nonetheless, it is primarily to be understood as a kingdom that is not of this world, which at the very least means, I think, when Jesus said those words in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world, Johnny told us there are two references the kingdom in the Gospel of John, that's one of them. And when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, at the very least, it means don't conceive of my kingdom in the way you conceive of the kingdoms of this world. It just functions in a different way. Like if you're just taking your view of Rome and mapping that onto my kingdom and how it operates, you're confused. You're not going to understand my kingdom and what I'm talking about. So how should we think positively about the kingdom? We should think of the kingdom of heaven in this way. The kingdom of heaven is God's righteous reign and rule. God's righteous reign and rule. It is his righteous reign and rule whereby he, number one, saves his people from their sins. Number two, destroys all of his enemies. And three, recreates the world. If you want to try to comprehend in short compass what is going on with the kingdom in Matthew's gospel and in other places in the New Testament, primarily these three broad strokes are in view. God saving his people from their sins, God triumphing over his enemies, and God recreating the world. The kingdom was promised in the Old Testament. It is inaugurated in Christ through his incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. The kingdom continues now in the present under the reign of Christ as men and women come under his saving rule. How's the kingdom of God being advanced now? Men and women being born again, becoming citizens of that kingdom. It will not be fully and finally consummated until the second coming of Christ. And that, I think, is where there will be the climactic overthrow of Jesus' enemies. That's where he will finally bind the strong man. That is where Satan will be cast out and vanquished and destroyed. 
All the spiritual powers of darkness fully and finally vanquished. Then on that day, and it is on that day, we will have a new heavens and a new earth. The whole world will be recreated in glorious perfection and sinless splendor. So there's two texts to help hang our theology of the kingdom on. One I've already mentioned. What's going on now? John 18, 36. Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would be fighting. Okay? There's aspects of the kingdom. They're not happening now. The kingdom is not of this world. It's not advanced by the sword. It's not advanced by laws being passed. It's not advanced by Supreme Court justices, unless they're saved. The kingdom is not advanced in the way you may think of the kingdoms of this world. And then the other text is in Revelation, at the end of all things. Then, in Revelation eleven fifteen, we read, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You sense the sort of already not yet thing going on. The kingdom is inaugurated. Aspects of it are being advanced. Citizens are coming in. The kingdom is expanding. But there are dimensions to this kingdom that await the triumphant second coming of the Lord Jesus. And it is then that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And then he shall reign forever and ever. So what I wish to highlight is God's kingdom in the present age expands as men and women are born again. Like as men and women are saved. Not as legislation is passed not as wars are won, not as we make educational, social, and cultural strides. No, the kingdom of God in the present age expands through conversion, through evangelism, through men and women being born again, becoming regenerate and entering the kingdom. But in the age to come, the world to come, the kingdom will be consummated by the return of Christ and will encompass a new heavens and a new earth. And then all the fullness of the kingdom will be ours. The fullness of the kingdom will come. We are awaiting the return of our Savior to bring all the manifestations of the kingdom to light. So live in this sort of already, not yet sort of tension of the kingdom. Okay, if that is what the kingdom is, then there are two basic things we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come. Here we are, new covenant Christians coming to our Father in heaven. We pray, your kingdom come. What do we mean when we say that. Two things. Number one, we are praying that God's saving rule would expand now as more men and women come under his saving reign through the spread of the gospel. Lord, bring the elect in. Cause men and women to believe the gospel. Cause sinners to be born again. Expand the kingdom. Grow the kingdom. Your kingdom come, Lord. We want to see men and women converted. Lord, convert our children. Save our neighbors. Save the nations of the world. Your kingdom come. We want your kingdom to expand. I didn't talk to Pastor Ben before he prayed the pastoral prayer, but you may have noticed he prayed, your kingdom come. And what did he pray for? He prayed that sinners would be saved and churches would be planted. That's how the kingdom is advanced in this world. And it is a far more serious and strategic and potent plan for how God's kingdom will expand than any politician can conceive. And indeed, the kingdom is expanding. Against all odds, men and women are believing the gospel and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom is growing. Men and women are being saved. That's what we're praying for. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for evangelism. 
We're praying for churches to be planted. Our brother Zach is going to be here next Sunday. He's going to talk about the church being planted in Kennesaw. We're going to pray, Lord, your kingdom come through the church. Bring them in. Cause them to be born again through the preaching of the gospel. In this new embassy of the kingdom of heaven, would you please, God, expand your kingdom there? And not just there, but in every place. And we pray your kingdom come here in our own church. I hope part of that prayer for us specifically is that Lord, help us to be successful and fruitful in our relationships to see men and women brought to faith in Christ. And Lord, would you help our church, if it would honor you, to see churches planted out of Emmanuel and to see more embassies, more centers for the kingdom popping up all over our region that more might be saved, more might be brought into the kingdom, and more might live according to your kingdom rule. That's what we pray in the first instance when we pray your kingdom come, which means... Kingdom work is far less about building wells in Africa and a lot more about adopting an international student from Wake Forest University and inviting them to your table and trying to find on-ramps for the gospel. Kingdom work is gathering children in the community. What is it, 85? Yeah? From all over the community, some in our church, some around here, and talking to them about Jesus and praying earnestly. I hope you're praying. Do the work of new birth. Grow the kingdom. Expand the kingdom. Bring the citizens in. Gather them in. And do the work of your kingdom. In the first place, we are praying. We pray your kingdom come. Lord, expand your kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. But secondly, remember what the kingdom is already, not yet. We are praying that God's consummated kingdom would come. Like, bring it back now. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Put all your enemies under your feet. Destroy Satan. Bring an end to death and sin and sorrow. We want Jesus to come back. We're praying, Lord, bring your kingdom now. It would be far better for us. I'm telling you, Christians here, it would be far better for you if the kingdom would come before I finish this sentence than not. The apostles were always in this posture of looking for the kingdom, loving Christ's appearing, wanting him to come and to return. And as I consider my own heart, I mean, you just think about this where you're sitting, I cannot find or locate a good reason why it would be better for Christ not to come now or why I wouldn't want him to come now. I have unconverted family, y'all. I have... Uh, unfulfilled dreams and wishes that I hope will be fulfilled in the future. I have dates on my calendar that I'm looking forward to, but none of those rises to a good enough reason why I wouldn't want Jesus to come back now, to come back today, to bring an end to all of Satan's work in a moment as lightning flashes across the sky, to bring an end to my sin nature, bring resurrection life, to bring an end to all the alienation and fracture and evil and sorrow and suffering in the world in an instant through the triumphant return of Jesus in establishing his kingdom as far as the east is from the west. These are the last words in our Bible, Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. As the healthy posture of every Christian heart. When we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We're saying, Lord, save the lost. Bring in the elect. 
Cause them to be born again. Expand your kingdom. And Lord, please come again soon. Come now even. We pray as Peter prayed that we would hasten the kingdom come. All right, third and final point this morning. Third concern we have in this prayer, God's glory, God's kingdom. Thirdly, God's will. God's will. We pray next in verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the Bible speaks of the will of God, theologians have often suggested that the Bible does it in two different ways. They'll even go as far as to say there's kind of two wills of God we can talk about. Got to be careful with that. But there's two different ways in which the Bible will talk about the will of God, simply speaking. The Bible will talk often about what we might call God's will of purpose. That's whatever he ordains. Uh, The Lord ordained that Joseph would be thrown into the pit. Of course, what the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. But whatever God wills, whatsoever comes to pass is part of his will. And there is nothing in all of creation that can thwart the accomplishment of that will of God. Whatever God wills to happen will come to pass. If this sermon ends at 11.55, God willed it to be so. If it ends at noon, he willed it to be so. Nothing falls outside the scope of God's will of purpose. Theologians will then speak of another way in which the Bible talks about God's will. They might call it God's moral will or God's will of precept, something like that. The Bible will often speak of God's will as what he is calling men and women to do in terms of righteousness and morality and ethics and goodness. And in this sense, God can say through the prophets, my will is not honored. He doesn't mean by that the things that I ordain to happen are not happening. No, what does he mean to say? My law is not being upheld. My moral revelation for people is being ignored. It's being lambasted. It's being dishonored. My will for what men and women ought to do and how they ought to live, it's not coming to pass in the way that it should. The Bible could speak of God's will in that way. That is the way in which God's will is being referenced here. When we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're talking about God's commandments being upheld. God's righteous laws and principles, His will being upheld in our own lives and in our families and in our community and in our nation and in our world. We know that because apparently Jesus is highlighting a kind of disparity that exists between the way His will is accomplished in heaven and the way His will is accomplished on earth. There is cleavage between the way in which God's will is practiced in heaven and the way in which it happens on earth. There's, there's a breakdown, there's fracture. In heaven, you get the sense that the angels are just waiting on God's beck and call at every moment to do his will. There is no sin and fracture and alienation in heaven. Heaven is a world of love. Heaven is a place of perfect peace. And God's will is always in every perfect detail, morally, righteously speaking, it is upheld. And we detect, don't we, a disparity between how God's will is upheld in heaven, how it's upheld here on earth. This is the way, then, we are to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just as, Father, there are no obstacles erected against your will in heaven, make it so here. 
Just as the angels in heaven are happy to do your will, make it so in my heart and in my family and in my church and in my community. Just as there is peace, harmony, unity, although we want to see that in our own context. We want We want warfare and alienation and fracture and dislocation to be banished. We want more and more your will to be upheld, your moral will, your righteous laws, your commands to be upheld and to be honored, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if we are to pray this prayer again with sincerity and with a clean conscience and in truth, this will require, first of all, two things at least for ourselves. If I'm to go to my Father in heaven and I'm to pray with any integrity or credibility, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm committing myself to two things. Number one, I am committing myself to learning all that I can about God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, your will. What is his will? Again, not talking about will of purpose exactly. Should I buy this house or that house? But Lord, what is right and good? What is true? What is honorable? What is righteous? What is your command? It's that that I want to do. And I want to search that out, and I want to know what that is. Romans 12, 2 says this. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We want to discern what is God's will for marriage. What's God's will for the family? What's God's will for the way men and women ought to work in their vocations? What is God's will with respect to our speech? What is God's will with respect to the way in which I use my body? What is God's will? If we are praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we're to pray that with sincerity and faith and integrity, we are first committing ourselves to learn what the will of God is and to hold nothing back, but to study it out. God, what do you want me to do? I will often ask in pastoral engagements, pastoral counseling, just as a thought experiment, If Jesus Christ were sitting here now, what would he tell you to do? Doesn't always bring clarity. It seems to me like nine times out of ten it does. What's the will of Christ? What does he want you to do? Search that out. But secondly, we are committing ourselves when we pray this prayer that by God's grace, by his help, I will do his will. I will obey. I will honor his will. I will live in accord with his will. Whatever I find it to be, whatever I discover it to be in his word, I will do it. I will hold nothing back. God gets a blank check. What is your will? Tell me what to do, and I, your servant, will do it. Your will be done in me, as it would be if I were sinlessly perfect. Obey all your laws. I want now to be a sanctified and holy and righteous as a redeemed sinner can be. But then, of course, this petition, like the others, also has implications for the wider world. We want God's will to be observed in every arena, in every sphere. This is one of the reasons why, you might have noticed, again, Ben and I did not coordinate this morning. He prayed, Lord, your will be done. And then what did he pray for? He prayed for the authorities. You notice that? 
We pray that, Lord, in the context of our nation, our government, we pray that laws would be passed that honor your will, not man's. That we would see at the national level, the local level, things happening in our community and in our nation that would be in accord with your will. And this way, this is the petition where we pray for the mayor, the governor, the legislature, the nation. This is where we pray for wars going on in the Ukraine. This is where we pray for medical personnel and law enforcement and teachers in our community. May Lord help them in these arenas, in these spaces. May your will be done there on earth as it is in heaven. That's a good and righteous prayer. And it's not wrong in the least to commit by our actions to see that God's will would be upheld and honored in those spheres. We are praying, God, not only in my life, but in my family, may your will be upheld. In my church, may your will be upheld. In my community, may your will be upheld. In all the world, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. God's glory, God's kingdom, God's will. Uh, Next week, we'll return to the prayer and consider the last three petitions in the prayer. In closing, let me say this. I'm praying that the Lord will use these sermons uh, to enlarge in our minds and our hearts uh, both a sense of the privilege of prayer and the possibilities for prayer. I hope all of us have had a sense in the past couple of weeks as we've considered the Lord's Prayer together and the preamble to the prayer, something of the privilege it is to be God's children and to have free and open access to Him. I found that statement more precious than at any time in my Christian life, your Father who is in secret. When I am in secret, He's with me away from the gaze and the view of everybody else, even my own wife. When I'm alone and in secret, my Father is there and He sees me. Your Father is in secret, He sees in secret. And in that setting, we all, the children of God, have complete freedom and access to go to Him on the terms of love and affection and affirmation and closeness and intimacy and love. And He is our Father in heaven, the great God, the transcendent God. He's my Father. And I'm to come to Him crying, Abba, Father, accessing Him, praying to Him, the privilege of prayer. I hope also in these weeks we will appreciate better the possibilities for prayer. And what I mean by that is our prayers can be so much more than they often are. Jesus is revealing to us that the very concerns of God's heart may be mine. I may voice them in prayer, and the priorities that I bring to God may rise as high as His own glory. They go as broad and as wide as His own kingdom. He wants me to talk to Him about that. And it is through prayer that God will be pleased to have His name hallowed. God will be pleased to see the kingdom expanded. God will be pleased to make His will better accomplished in this world. What possibilities there are for prayer. That when I am in secret with God, the concerns of the great and transcendent God of all are my own. 
and I may pray to him, Lord, hallowed be your name in all the world, in my life, everywhere. May your name be lifted up and may it be holy. I want to worship you in prayer. Lord, your kingdom come. May you save the lost. May you build your church. And Lord, would you please come quickly and bring the consummated kingdom. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, starting with me, the sphere of my family, my church, in all the world. Friends, I hope all of you go to God day by day and pray to him. It's been very sad to me to recognize how frequent it is for Christians to go even days and days without praying. That should become so unnatural to us. Can't imagine that a day would go by that I would not lift up my heart in prayer in secret. I'm not just talking about praying over a meal. I'm talking about in private, in secret, going to God, praying to Him. I hope we're all doing that. And I just want to excite you by way of incentive and motivation. What is waiting for you there? A secret audience with God, your Father, who wants to hear from you. And you may pray about the concerns of God's own heart. Priorities of your prayer may be as great as the glory of his name, the expansion of his kingdom, the accomplishment of his will. Let's pray together. Father, we would come now and we would pray this prayer, I hope, with renewed faith, with greater intelligence. We pray, Father, that your name would be hallowed. We pray that it would be hallowed in our own lives by the way we live, by the way we speak, by the praise that we render to you. We pray that our church would hallow your name. We pray, Father, that we would lift you up in song and in prayer, in our attention to your word, and in lives of obedience to your commands. May we praise you with everything that we have as your people. We pray that in all the world your name would be lifted up and would be hallowed. In every nation, among every tribe, tongue, and people, there would be citizens of the kingdom, children of God, redeemed men and women who would hallow your name, give you glory. We pray, Father, that your kingdom would come. We pray, Father, that we would see in our time a great ingathering of souls, that we would see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in regeneration. We pray that you would do that in the lives of children this week. We pray through the International Student Ministry we'd see this happen. We pray that in our relationships with our neighbors and our fellow students and coworkers, that we would see the kingdom come. We pray that we would see churches planted, that we would see missionaries sent forth, we pray, Father, that you would expand your kingdom through salvation and conversion. But we pray too, Lord, bring the kingdom in all its fullness. We love the appearing of our Savior. We long for it. We pray with united hearts this morning, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Your kingdom come. And Lord, we pray also that your will would be done now on earth as it is in heaven. That your will, your commands, your righteous law would be accomplished in us and also in our community. That your purpose for human flourishing, your will for
for righteousness and truth. We pray that it would be upheld in our community and around the world. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.